0: All right, I'll read the passage this morning. It's John 4, 1 through 30, and we'll be in it the next three weeks. I'll explain why in just a little bit. It's one of the more famous stories in the Bible, the story of the woman in the well. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John... water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I, give, that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, call your, go call your husband and come here. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, why do you seek? What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. couple of questions for you. If you wanted to take someone to a passage in the Bible to help them understand the nature of salvation, where would you take them? What is the primary passage, or what are the main passages you would take? Someone seems curious about how they might go to heaven when they die, or be made right with God, and they ask you, what, is that? what does it mean? What does it mean to be saved? Where would you go in the Bible? Uh, when I first came to faith in Christ, the Romans Road, is that a thing? Do you guys know? Okay, so the Romans Road was sort of the deal in the 90s, and at least in the context I was in. Personally today, more often than not, I'll go to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 with people who don't understand what the Bible says. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this, it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can boast. And 9 is really important as well because salvation is bigger than just the moment of conversion. We're saved to something as well. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, uh, what would you use? What passage do you go to? And in a similar vein, second question, if someone came to you and asked, what does the Bible say about worship? What does it mean to worship uniquely as a Christian where would you take them in Scripture to answer that question? There are lots of questions about styles of music, and in the Old Testament times, they gathered on Saturdays, and now we gather on Sundays, and how much smoke and lasers are okay, and how many people can you fit on a worship team, and that kind of stuff? What instruments are allowed? And, and do we need to stand more or sit more or forget music? How about preaching? styles of preaching and how much is meant to be private worship versus corporate worship and lots of questions. Where would you take somebody to help them understand Christian worship? What are the main passages that shape your understanding of it? For many years, I've been drawn to Exodus 33 and 34. This is, in some ways, the cry of every Christian's heart. Moses said to God at the end of chapter 33, Something I, I hope you 've all prayed, God, show me your glory. I, life is hard sometimes, and I feel beat down, I feel uncertain of which direction to go, or even I feel great, but but i 'm not sure which direction to aim that feeling greatness that I have. Show me your glory God that will that will be my plumb line <laughs> that, that will help me to set my bearings. that will let me know where to fix my eyes. Show me your glory, and relates to worship. God answered. <laughs> I've prayed that a lot. I've never gotten this response from God, but the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, God himself said, the Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness this is a great start. Keeping steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin and by, but, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In other words, I'm, I'm holy, but I'm good and merciful and kind. And what did Moses do? Moses quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshiped. That's, that's probably the most vivid picture I have in my head of what it means to truly worship God. But Romans and and Exodus and many other passages in the Bible are fine places for a biblical take on salvation and worship. But our passage for this morning, this passage in John chapter four is one of the few that addresses both together and so clearly, both with clear statements on each, but also a clear depiction of it. It's, it's narrative with truth claims in it. It's a remarkable passage. And Jesus' words and actions, centuries of confusion among the people of God, centuries of confusion and wandering, and the issues of salvation and worship are cleared up for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. Grace, God sent his son, his only son, to teach on and model and accomplish true worship and salvation. And we're given an awesome glimpse of both in John 4. 1 to 30. Obviously, those are some impressive and fairly dramatic claims that I just made. However, while it's easy to make claims like that about this passage, it can be a bit more difficult to see all of them in this text, at least at first. There's a lot embedded in, not not just sitting on the surface, but there's a lot embedded in this passage that isn't obvious right away. There's always a cultural gap. I, I I remember this so vividly as a new believer. I had no idea what the Bible was. I remember going to a Bible study and just sort of having been, my first ever, sort of having been around the church, I thought I would know something about the Bible. And I have no idea what they told us to do with the Bible. But I remember right away knowing, I don't know what you're talking about. It was probably like go to 1 Corinthians or something. And I don't know what a 1 Corinthians is. And so I remember, okay, I got stuff to learn. And, and one of the biggest mistakes I made early on, in spite of my enthusiasm and eagerness to learn, was reading it as if it were written today to Americans in this culture, in this setting. And certainly it's for us, but it wasn't originally written to us in that way. And so there's always a cultural gap, language and culture and between first century Middle Eastern Jewish culture in ours. There's always a gap that we need to we need to be able to navigate, but it shows up more than usual in this passage. And so when I say a lot of what's in this passage in terms of worship and salvation is awesome, it's also embedded in some ways. What I mean is the cultural gap is bigger here than than it often is. It's always there, but it's more so here. I I hope to help this morning to bridge. That gap. I'm going to ask some questions and give some answers, and the goal is to bridge the gap so that next week we'll look back at this passage and focus on salvation, what it teaches us about salvation, with the fresh ability to see through the cultural gap. And then in two weeks on on worship. It's an unusual sermon. I don't. I'm going to say this again in my conclusion, but I don't think I've ever given a sermon quite like this before, where the main purpose is to give you the lenses to see the text. I think you'll get a bit more than that, but that's ultimately what I'm after. So again, this morning's sermon is a sermon of questions and answers to set us up well for this week and the next two. Let's pray then. Let's pray that God would help us appreciate this passage and along with it, receive his salvation that's just talked about here and modeled here and be filled with true worship. God, we, we confess before you that we need to be saved. We also confess before you that our understanding of what that means, however dialed in it is, still falls short of the fullness of what it means to be saved by Jesus. pray that you'd open our eyes in this text and beyond. You deserve all praise and honor and glory and not the least reason for that is the amazingness of the grace that you give us. The remarkableness of the salvation which you won for us in Jesus Christ. The idea of having our sins washed away. The idea of being adopted into your family. The idea of being made holy, being justified, not on the basis of our own holiness, but the holiness given to us by Jesus through faith. But then, on top of that, our salvation includes being made actually holy by your Spirit, keeping us, trusting in Jesus, sanctifying our souls fully at death, and sanctifying our bodies and reuniting them with our souls fully at the return of Jesus where our salvation is fully and finally complete, that we can experience the new heavens and the new earth completely remade. What a what an awesome reality that is! Help help us to see a glimpse of that in this text, even as we work towards a fuller understanding of that through all of your Word. And God, as that takes root in us, as we grow and both our understanding of that and our experience of that and our longing for that, having been saved and still being saved. I, I pray that that would serve as, like Kyle likes to say, jet fuel for our worship. God, help us to burn hotter in our satisfaction in you, and our love for you, and our longing for you. And may this text be a means to that end, and this sermon a means to that end. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Nine questions. Nine background questions I intend to ask and answer in just a few minutes. My aim, again, in doing so is to help us appreciate the context of the passage so that we can most fully embrace the salvation of Jesus and the worship of God. Here's the first question. It comes from the first three verses. Why did the Pharisees care? Here's a, It's actually verses one and three. I'll come back to two. But now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees... And heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee. First question is, why did the Pharisees care that Jesus was making more disciples than John the Baptist? And why did Jesus care that they cared? What's up with that? Let me word it another way. Why did finding out, why did, in, in Jesus finding out, why did finding out that the Pharisees knew that Jesus was gaining more disciples than John the Baptist caused Jesus to leave the area, All right? That's the question. The heart of the answer has two prongs. It'll help us lean further into worship and salvation. The first is that it was a part of the ex- exchange zone. Pastor Mike in a sermon last week talked about John the Baptist to Jesus like a like a relay race and track where there's an exchange zone where the bat- baton is handed off, but it's Part of it is a part of that. That is, as questions and tensions rose concerning the relationship between the ministries of John the Baptist and the ministries of Jesus, including the baptizing ministries of John the Baptist and the followers of Jesus, Jesus chose to clear out for a time in order to allow the matter to resolve itself. There's no confusion between John and Jesus, only between their followers and the Pharisees. Again, the first reason Jesus left as his ministry came to the fore and John the Baptist's faded to the back, he must become greater, I must become lesser, was to allow the tension with John the Baptist's followers to naturally and appropriately fade as they worked their way through the ministry exchange zone. The second part of the answer to this question is, one that will play out over and over and over again. I've brought it up at least three times that I can remember, which probably means it's been more like five or six, because my memory stinks. But the the second main prong here is that throughout Jesus' ministry, we'll see this again and again and again. He left because his time had not yet come. I need you to bookmark that in your mind. If you haven't already, Bookmark that because we 're going to hear this language many times, and you might wonder whats what 's up with that? Why does he keep saying that? He left because his time is not yet come well it 'll become that 'll become most clear if you want to look ahead and cheat a little bit. Read the beginning of chapter seven that 's where he explains what i 'm about to say in greater detail. The fact that Jesus would be crucified in the place that he was now vacating that he was now leaving was testifies to the fact that the further away from Jerusalem that he got, the less intense the opposition. So as he got further away from this center of Judaism, the less intense his opposition was. Now here's the thing. Jesus was not afraid of opposition. Indeed, he knew that opposition, persecution, was the very tool by which God would save the world through him. Let me say that again. That's pretty profound. We'll come back to that later in John, but Jesus knew that this persecution, this opposition that right now he was leaving was the very tool that the father had chosen to use to bring about his crucifixion and the salvation of the world through it. Jesus wasn't afraid, but he was strategic. And that's the key. He had more work to do on earth before he was to return to his rightful place in heaven. It's important, not merely as an interesting bit of trivia, but because it helps us to understand more clearly the constant strategizing of Jesus. He truly was wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove, as he called his disciples to be. And so he's he's leaving this area and setting up this divine appointment with the woman at the well, because his time had not yet come ultimately. Next, why is it important that Jesus did not baptize, but only his disciples did? Verse 2. John 3.22. If you have your Bibles, uh, flip back to three, chapter 3, verse 22. It's, it seems pretty straightforward. After this, it says, Jesus and the disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Okay, if that's all that we had, that seems pretty straightforward, right? It would seem obvious that Jesus was traveling around this region in the south and baptizing those who received his message. That's all we had, that would seem straightforward, but that's not all that we have. And our passage for this morning provides an important clarification. In verse 1 and 2. We read, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, and here's the key. Parenthetically, verse 2, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but only his disciples. What's going on? Was he baptizing or not? Him personally. And why is it important for John to add this to this? And what does this have to do with worship and salvation? Again, two keys to this. First, although we're never told why, explicitly, John's clarification of his own words, he had just written a few verses earlier, so he's clarifying what he meant by what he just said, is that Jesus, in fact, simply enough, didn't do any of the baptizing. And in some ways, this is like the Apostle Paul. You can maybe write this down and look this up later, but 1 Corinthians one fourteen 14 and 15, Paul functioned in a in a similar way. Didn't do the baptizing himself. It's a little... Dangerous to speculate beyond the simple fact, but the simple fact is there for us to have. But second, and more to the point, we must settle that on, on, on the reality that every legitimate baptism, whether it's from John the Baptist, or Jesus' disciples, or even us today in our horse trough on the 22nd, every legitimate baptism was and is a baptism of Jesus. It is, in a sense, a baptism of Jesus that Jesus is doing the baptizing. Jesus alone has authority to authorize and legitimize anything. Even if baptism, the baptisms baptisms of John and Jesus at this point in redemptive history had slightly different points of emphasis, both were from God. Read the way one commentator described it. This is this is great. Jesus alone is the true Baptist. We talk about John the Baptist, but it really is Jesus the Baptist. Jesus alone is the true Baptist, and that all legitimate baptisms are, as we see in the Great Commission, in his name, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. The simple point is that the gospel leaves no doubt as to the God-honoring nature of the ministry and baptisms of John the Baptist and the rightness of Jesus' disciples baptizing in Jesus' presence, And for those things to be the case, they must have been baptizing on Jesus' behalf. And so this question is especially important as we consider salvation and worship, and that it is a good reminder that although we might want to know things that the text doesn't tell us, God gives us everything we need. Okay, you should write what I'm about to say down. One sentence. Where the text doesn't answer our questions and where it answers questions that we didn't ask, we need different questions. say that again. This is one of the more important things you can get to live the Christian life as you're intended to. Where the text doesn't answer the questions you're asking or where you're not asking the questions the text is answering, you need different questions. The text informs us not simply in that it gives us answers, but that it gives us the right questions as well. We learn that from this passage. Third, who were the Samaritans? This is maybe one of the most important parts of the cultural gap. I want to read again what a different commentator said. The Samaritans, it's interesting because really the only thing we know mainly is from the New Testament. There's some other stuff out there but it's not really helpful. I mean, other stuff historically. But mainly what we know is from the New Testament and and the fact is, we just don't know a lot for sure about this. But here, here, I think, is something that we can settle on that's safe. The Samaritans were most likely, I'm going to just read what he wrote and then explain it just a little bit. They were most likely descendants of the undeported. Now, if you're new to the faith or not all that familiar with the Bible, this sounds like a little bit of gibberish, but stay with me. The Samaritans were most likely descendants of the undeported northern kingdom and foreign colonists brought in from Babylon and Media by the Assyrian conquerors of Samaria. All right, is that all clear? You got it now? Okay, The, the, the deal is throughout the Old Testament, the history of Israel, as you probably know, is the history of God blessing them them praising God at first for their blessing, and then devolving into trusting in the blessing instead of God, and using that blessing to do idolatrous things. And then God, loving them too much to allow them to continue wandering in their idolatry, judges them in the most severe forms by allowing them to be conquered by pagan nations so that they will repent, so that he can restore their blessing. That's if you don't want to read the Old Testament this week, I just saved you the time. That's basically the story of it. Okay, well the bottom line here is in one of these conquering cycle deals, the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdoms of Israel and this is where part of the many of the Israelites were driven out of the land and forced to live elsewhere in exile and instead were imported some of the other pagan nations, some of the Assyrians themselves and and as the commentator tells us, also some of the Babylonians and the Medians. And what happened was there were there were groups of Israelites that were not driven fully out, and they intermingled and intermarried with these pagan nations. And the Samaritans were the remnant of those people. So Israelites and Babylonians and Medians and Syrians. Okay, so the problem here is will become more plain as we work through John's Gospel, is that they not only mingled their families, but they mingled their religions as well. This was a problem. They adopted adapted the worship of the God of Israel with the gods of Babylon. They also, at the time that John 4 was written, uh, and before, but they were people who only accepted the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, as authoritative. So probably the main things for us to get for this, for the purpose of worship and salvation of this passage, is that that these people, the Samaritans, were a people of mixed lineage, that they occupied, which we'll see in a second in my next point, they occupied a land rich in Israelite history, and lastly, the point after that, that as a result of all of this and, and more, there was genuine hatred, genuine hatred. I don't don't know that there's a modern-day equivalent of this, but there was genuine hatred between Jews and Samaritans, at least in our our modern-day American equivalent. The fact that Jesus went to Samaria and spoke as he did to this woman was no small act of cultural defiance. And the next several questions and answers will only amplify that. And in the way of salvation, this is a really big deal. So the next question then is, why did John include the information that he did about Jacob and Joseph, verses 5 and 6? John mentions that on his way to Galilee, Jesus ended up in a town in Samaria. And in this town, this town was near a field that the father, if you hear about the Jews and their history and their sense of well-being, it comes from being offspring of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Those three names over and over and over. Well, this particular city that Jesus was in, in this land of people that the Jews hated, was near a field, verse 5 tells us, that Jacob had given to his son Joseph and that Jacob's own well was there, that Jacob himself had drunk out of and his animals as well. Again, to most fully grasp what this passage says about salvation and worship, it's important for us to understand why John felt the need to say that. Why did he include that in there? Well, the primary reason was to establish the simple fact that like nearly everything else, the Jews of Jesus' day that he had just battled with in the first couple of chapters and will spend the rest of his ministry on earth battling with, the Jews of Jesus' day misunderstood their place in God's plan. God meant them. He he gave them the fathers. He gave them the covenants. He gave them the law. He gave them the celebrations and feasts. He gave them those things to be a holy light to the world. And God meant their holy light to flow out of a deep and profound sense of humility and dependence upon God. Grace, here's the thing with this. Their history, the history of the Jews who were so known for hating the Samaritans for a bunch of reasons that we saw and will still see, their history was riddled with every bit as much idolatry and spiritual adultery as the Samaritans. Their only hope, the hope of the Jews, their only hope was always the mercy of God rather than the merit of their souls. Rather than humbly and graciously and mercifully imitating the love, of, the love that God had shown them in spite of their unworthiness, the Jews stood in prideful judgment over the Samaritans. It's not to say that the Samaritans had not made wicked choices and did not need to repent in significant ways, but it is to say that the Jews' understanding of their response needed to be significantly recalibrated if it was to be consistent with the salvation and worship of God. Again, in mentioning this land and this well of Jacob and Joseph, pillars of the Jewish faith, in doing that, John established the fact that contrary to Jewish thinking, it wasn't merely having a claim on the land that made someone right with God. And by mentioning their common ancestry, John established that it wasn't merely being a physical descendant of Abraham that made someone right with God. In short, these things matter, bringing up Jacob and Joseph, because they helped John's readers understand, as we'll see next week, that Jesus will save based on his mercy and grace, or no one will be saved. It's that or it's nothing. All right, so why then was the woman at the well when Jesus was there? This is a really important question, verses 6 and 7. Typically, for their protection, for their help, together, women would gather water in groups. They would go out together. It was safer and it was more efficient. Also, due to the time of year and the heat of the noonday sun, women would typically gather water, the water for the day in the morning, in the cool of the morning. Not for certain. It is almost certain. It's very likely that the woman was alone, as in not in a group, and collecting water at the sixth hour, which is noon. If you read the hour of the day, it usually starts from 6 a.m. and add whatever hour they say, so the ninth hour is 3 o'clock, the sixth hour is noon, because she was an outcast among the Samaritans for being as promiscuous and immoral as she was. I read earlier, she would had five husbands and was currently living sinfully with a man out of wedlock. This was important because it will help us to see that just as it's not based on your connection to Jacob and Joseph or Abraham and Isaac, just as it's important, Grace, that's why it's a standalone sermon rather than just trying to get it all in next week. This is important because it'll help us to see that just as God's salvation and worship are not ultimately rooted in a person's nationality, Neither are they rooted in a person's past. This woman was as shameful as they come, but that did not stop Jesus from offering himself to her for salvation and worship. Amen. Why was it surprising to the Samaritan woman that Jesus would ask her for a drink? Or, literally from the text, why don't Jews have dealings with Samaritans? A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, in verse 7. And then in verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, what's up with that? Now, that's not really what she said, but that's the gist of it. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. What was it? Why was it surprising to the woman that Jesus would ask her for a drink? Or why don't Jews have dealings with Samaritans? Well, we've already seen some of it. In addition to the reasons we've already seen, that is, in addition to the mixed ancestry, the pagan syncretistic worship of the Samaritans, and the fact that this was an adulterous woman. Again, I want to, I think it's the last time I'm going to quote a commentator, but this is, again, better than I could say it. By the first century, that is the time of the writing of John's gospel, there had already been around two centuries of conflict and strife between these two groups, the Samaritans and the Jews with both sides committing violent war crimes against the other. For this reason, the very mention of Samaria in verse 4, cultural gap shrinking so that next week and the following, salvation worship will come more fully, so that the very mention of Samaria in verse 4 is intended to evoke unease in the readers of John's Gospel. The reader is expected, you and I now are aware, of the sharp conflict existing at numerous levels between the two groups. And here's the key to all this, I'm I'm still quoting. The encounter when these two, the encounter between these two, a Samaritan and and a Jew, was normally avoided at all costs. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a second as well. And when inevitable or unavoidable, it warranted merely a public repudiation of the other group the establishment of their own. In other words, you just talk trash as you walked by as quickly as you could. You, You called them a name or said something about their mom or whatever. But the point is, you avoided it at all costs. And if you had to have interaction, it was only meant to cast insults and give the business to them. According to custom, so the question is, why was this woman surprised? According to custom, virtually everything about this woman, and especially in relation to a Jewish religious leader like Jesus, demanded that Jesus have nothing but disgust to do with this woman. But rather than disgust, Jesus talked with the woman with respect and with dignity. The glory of this reality, as we'll unpack next week, is that it is yet another example that Jesus did not do what he did just because that's what had been done. Jesus did not do what he did for the pleasure of man, but for God alone, the Father. Jesus came to do God's will, not keep peace with those who had religious power. There's glory in the fact that Jesus does not look at a person's face, but at their heart. All right, next one. What's up with the woman's questions? She peppers him. I counted five. Three explicit in verses 9, 11, and 12 and two implied in verses 19 and 25. Verse 9, the woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a woman, for a drink, for me, a woman of Samaria? Again, the the thing we need to see from this is that Jesus spoke to the woman in a way that just didn't make sense to her. We're going to talk about that in the future. You should do that a lot. You should speak in ways that just don't make sense to people whose hope is not in Christ. It was a clear break from the norm, so it caught her off guard. What's going on here? After being offered living water, which was another weird thing, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? Just as the woman was confused by the fact that Jesus addressed her and the manner in which he did, so too she was confused about what he said. Living water? What? (laughs) I mean, this is a good well. It's it's been around for a long time. This is good stuff, but what are you talking about? And so in reply, she asks her third explicit question, are you greater than our father Jacob? And now here's where the reason I'm asking and answering this today becomes clear. Dwelling in the land of someone as prominent as Jacob and Joseph, drinking from the same well as these men, and walking in the place that God had so clearly worked and blessed were all sources of great pride and, and, in their minds, legitimacy for the Samaritans. When they were looked down upon by the Jews, when the Jews would come by and talk trash about them, they could point to each of these things as a retort and an argument for their validity. In response to Jesus' significant claims, the woman was playing a familiar card. It was one that for centuries had been ingrained in her and her people. She intended to back Jesus down a bit. Okay, step step back, man. I can't answer you directly. And so indirectly, I'm going to use tricks that our people have been using for a long time. She intended to back Jesus down a bit by putting him up next to one of the very fathers of their faith. So picture yourself playing basketball, you know, sort of like, I challenge, you know, some six-year-old at Grace Church to a basketball game. I'm, you know, I'm feeling pretty good and, you know, on an eight-and-a-half-foot rim dunking on him and all that stuff. And and then all of a sudden, they bring up, you know, LeBron James. It's meant to, okay, you're comparing yourself to the wrong person, the woman has said. I, I don't match up to you, but put yourself up against Jacob and Joseph. That's what she's doing here. Are you greater than our father Jacob? I can't. I can't respond to you, but you can't respond to Jacob. So in response to Jesus' significant claims, she held Jesus up to one she was sure would knock him down a peg or two, one that everyone agreed was superior to them. Well, rather than back down, Jesus doubled down. He claimed once again that this water was in every way superior to the water of Jacob. So in response... Woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And in that statement is another implied question. What do you have to say about that, Jesus? Here's another card that our people have played year after year after year, century after century, that this card's worked. You've never been able to give an answer for this. And so in response to the woman's attempt to knock Jesus down a peg by comparing him to Jacob rather than her, Jesus responded to her by describing in detail her sordid marital history. And in response to that, the woman tried to stump Jesus with one of those unanswerable questions. "Can You know, you're talking a lot of stuff here, Jesus, but I got one for you. Can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? Debated about that forever and ever. How many angels can fit on the pin of or the head of a needle? The head, the head of whatever the question is. Or more biblically, do you guys remember this? This, these both happen in the New Testament with Jesus. The the Sadducees asked Jesus. Remember the story? This man was married and he died and he had no kids, and and so she married one of his brothers and they had no kids and he died and five times, five brothers, whose whose Or whose wife will this woman be in heaven, which was a total messed up deal because the the Sadducees didn't even believe in that and the resurrection. And so it was just a a question that they had learned that no one could answer. It was just meant to throw them off. And of course, Jesus answered it and, and mocked them for their foolishness. Or the time when The Pharisees said to Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? There were hundreds of commandments, and they were always debating, which is the most important. And they thought they could knock him down a peg again by asking a question nobody had ever been able to answer. And, of course, Jesus answered it and knocked them down a peg. But these were questions that were not sincere. That's the point. The woman was not asking sincere questions. She was using a common defense. She was trying everything she could to get out from under the unique authority of this unique man. Standing in front of her. So the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And again, here's the implied question. We'll just have to disagree, agree to disagree, won't we, Jesus? We'll have to just call it a truce until the true Messiah comes, and then he'll he'll answer these things for us. Well, in a last bit of desperation then, the woman basically said, well, we'll just have to wait and see. The thing for us to see then is that as we move toward salvation and worship in the coming weeks is that the woman's questions, again, were not sincere. They were defense mechanisms designed to help the woman avoid the implications of Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, as the very Son of God, as the Christ standing before her. If you're going to write something down on this one. Here it is. We will never be able to receive salvation or offer proper worship if we care more about being right in our own eyes or being safe or being comfortable or being in line with what others believe, even over long periods of time. We will never be able to receive salvation or offer proper worship if we care more about those things than the truth that is in Christ. How did Jesus know this woman's history? We're almost done. This is a question that godly men and women for a long time have discussed and debated, much like whose, whose wife will this woman be in heaven, or which is the greatest commandment? Why did Jesus seem to know some things that he shouldn't have been able to know, and not others, like when he would return, for instance? Likewise, how do we make sense of the passages that talk about Jesus not being able to do miracles there, perform miracles there? What do we what do, we do with this? And directly, how did Jesus know all that he knew about this, this woman? Well, the simple fact of the matter is that God's word doesn't explicitly answer that question for us, at least not in a way that's easy to see. We must therefore be humble and cautious as we speculate, but I'm going to speculate for just a second. For what it's worth, the answer I found most compelling and biblically defensible is the idea that part of what Jesus did when he took on a human nature, part of what Paul means when he says he humbled himself by taking on flesh, part of what it meant was totally surrendering to the Holy Spirit. Where Jesus knew things on earth that God alone could know, it was because the Holy Spirit Revealed that to him. When he could perform miracles, it was because the Spirit empowered him. Well, it may be interesting to speculate, and you don't need to write that down. That's not why this question is relevant to us about salvation and worship. It's relevant because, however, Jesus knew what he knew in his human nature, it could have come only from God, and people who have things that can come only from God need to be taken seriously even you and I, as we bring the word of God to the world. What Jesus says here about salvation and worship is from God, and therefore it matters more than what any of us thinks, more than what anyone else thinks, more than what anyone else has written or said or sung about. And so the point is, Grace, and this you should write down, as we lean into what is salvation and what is worship, you need to surrender your understanding of things, your, your semi-sanctified common sense on these matters, and let the word of God inform you. In what sense, lastly then, did Jesus have to go to Samaria? Verse 3. It's the heart of the matter. This sets us up perfectly for next week. Verse 3 says, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and in verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. I'm only going to briefly answer this, just a couple of sentences, because it's this entire subject of next week. There were two roads between Judea, where Jesus was at the moment, and Galilee, where he was heading. There There were two additional roads, that is, two roads that did not go through Samaria. One took travelers west of Samaria, and the other one crossed the Jordan River and took travelers east to the, of the region. And in fact, this will become important at the end of John, because that's the one, the, the one east of the Jordan that Jesus took back down when he finally came into Jerusalem to be crucified. In other words, there was no geographical reason that Jesus had to go through Samaria. But if not a geographical necessity, then what? Certainly it was because he had a divine appointment with the woman at the well. He was there to talk to the woman that she might believe and be saved and worship, and then spread the good news of Jesus to all her people that they too might believe and be saved and worship and spread the good news to all the earth, which she did and they did. Again, that's where we're heading, to the nature of salvation and worship that Jesus came to bring. So again, this this is an unusual sermon. It was not a normal sermon. I don't know that I've ever given one like it. But wherever people are convinced, and I hope you are, and if you're not already, I hope to help you become convinced, that the role of preaching is to help people explain and apply the Word of God, there will be sermons that, as determined by the text itself, are more inspiring. Some Some of them are more inspiring because the text itself is more inspiring. And some are more convicting because the text calls the people of God out on sin. Some are more challenging. I thought I was was following you, Jesus, but I see that there's this whole other way in this area that I need to follow you. Some will be more rebuking and some will be more recalibrating and some will be more informing, perhaps like this one. Good preaching is dependent upon the text and good preaching teaches the hearers to to be dependent upon it as well. Not the preacher, the text. Well, our personalities, you're all wired differently. We're all wired differently. Our preferences, the things we like and want, the seasons of life that we're in, old or young or weak or strong, culture, the culture that we're in, and the daily context, all shape what you might want to hear. All of you want to hear certain things right now because of those things. That's okay. But God's word unrelentingly brings us back to what we need to hear. They're not always the same. And what we need to hear, according to this passage of God's providence in this season of life, is that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone that we can be saved. That it is necessary, salvation is necessary, because we do not worship God as we ought, none of us. And ultimately leads us, salvation leads us into right, everlasting, and all-satisfying Worship. That's, that's what this is all about. That's what all these questions and answers were about, was to get us to the best place to see that in the text. So this sermon from this text is meant to set us up to understand those three things in the next two weeks with all that we've got.